everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everybody. As always, I am Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through the stand. So I'm going to give you guys a quick recap of last week in Chapter 39. Lloyd Henry was still imprisoned in Phoenix, close to starvation and running out of water. Things got so bad that he ate a dead rat and then finally took a bite out of the leg of a dead inmate in the next cell. But thankfully, Randall Flagg happened to appear at just the right time, offering Lloyd his freedom and a place at Flagg's side in exchange for Lloyd's loyalty. Flagg has a stone, a little black stone, one that represents the things that Lloyd wants and what Lloyd could have. And on that stone is a marking that looks like a bloodied half-closed eye. Now, I mentioned in that episode that this reminded me of the Eye of Sauron from The Lord of the Rings, and I do have to take a quick moment to thank Scott Phillip for reaching out to me and letting me know that the Eye was the sigil of the Crimson King from the Dark Tower series, which also is certainly a nod to Sauron. So I have not yet read the Dark Tower series. Um, Well, not completely. I'm on the gunslinger, so I didn't put two and two together yet, but I'm really thankful for the connection. So thank you, Scott. Obviously, Lloyd agreed to Flag's demands. Um, I guess I can't say demands because it was more of a like, oh, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. So um, he and Flag left the prison together, and I'd say it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. This week, we are discussing chapter 40. We are 40 chapters in to the stand. And we have um, two more chapters, chapter 41 and chapter 42, before we are finished with book one of the stand, Captain Trips. Very exciting stuff, you guys. <laughs> We've come so far, and yet we still have so far to go. <laughs> so, anyway, this week in chapter 40, we are back in Shoyo, Arkansas, where Nick Andros is dying, not of the super flu but of an infection in his leg caused by the bullet graze that he received the night Ray Booth tried to kill him and instead ended up gouging out one of Nick's eyes. The pain in Nick's eye had faded into a dull ache, but now when he tries to look through that eye, all he sees is a gray blur in which shapes sometimes moved or seemed to. The pain had been so severe in his eye that he had practically ignored the wound in his leg. He hadn't disinfected it, and it ran along his right thigh and ended at the knee. The wound was red along the edges, so Nick limps down to Dr. Soam's office, and he uses an entire bottle of hydrogen peroxide on the leg. But, as it says in the chapter, it had been a case of locking the barn door after the horse had been stolen. By that evening, the entire leg was throbbing like a rotten tooth, and Nick could see the telltale red lines spreading from the wound, indicating blood poisoning. Eventually, he returns to Soam's office, and he takes a couple of penicillin pills, aware that if uh, his body has a strong reaction to the medication, he could die. But if he doesn't take them, the result could be an even nastier death. Thankfully, the penicillin doesn't kill him, but there doesn't seem to be any noticeable improvement in his leg either. 
Soon, Nick is running a high fever, and he suspects he's been delirious most of the time. He has no appetite, and all he seems to want to do is drink water. Nick is not crazy about the idea of dying, but at least dying meant no more worry and no more pain. His sleep had been restless since killing Ray Booth. His dreams are something like a flood. He's dreaming of everyone he's known. Rudy Sparkman telling him that you are this blank page. His mother wrapping lines and circles she helped him make on another page, telling him that those lines and circles spell his name. Janie Baker mourning her husband Johnny. Dr. Soames asking Sheriff Baker to take off his shirt. And Ray Booth saying that he's going to mess up Nick real good. And unlike all of the other dreams in his life, Nick does not need to lip-read any of them. He can actually hear what they're saying. They're so vivid. But then they would fade as he began to wake. And then a new scene would appear when he sank into sleep again. And he would dream about people he had never seen before. These dreams Nick remembered most clearly when he woke up. In the first dream it reads, He was on a high place. The land was spread out below him like a relief map. It was a desert land, and the stars above had the mad clarity of altitude. There was a man beside him. No, not a man, but the shape of a man, as if the figure had been cut from the fabric of reality, and what really stood beside him was a negative man, a black hole in the shape of a man. And the voice of this shape whispered, Everything you see will be yours if you fall down on your knees and worship me. Nick shook his head, wanting to step away from that awful drop, afraid the shape would stretch out its black arms and push him over the edge. The figure asks why Nick doesn't speak. Why does he shake his head? Nick gestures that he's mute, but then he hears himself say, in a clear and beautiful voice, I can't talk. I am mute. The dark figure responds to him, but you can. If you want to, you can. Nick is overcome by amazement and joy. He reaches out to touch the shape, momentarily forgetting about his fear, but his hand turns ice cold as it nears the shape's shoulder and ice crystals form on his knuckles. And then he can hear. The dark shape's voice, the far-off cry of a hunting nightbird, the endless whine of the wind. He was struck mute all over again by the wonder of it. There was a new dimension to the world he had never missed because he had never experienced it, and now it had fallen into place. He was hearing sounds, he seemed to know what each was without being told. They were pretty, pretty sounds. He ran his fingers back and forth across his shirt and marveled at the swift whisper of his nails on the cotton. Then the dark man was turning toward him, and Nick was terribly afraid. This creature, whatever it was, performed no free miracles. If you fall down on your knees and worship me. Nick can only cover his face because he wants all of the things the dark shape has shown him. Cities, women, treasure, power. Most of all, he wants to hear the sound his fingernails made on his shirt. The tick of a clock in an empty house after midnight. The sound of rain. But Nick says no. He says no, and then he's falling, pushed over the edge of that high place, screaming soundlessly and tumbling into the smell of corn. It says, yes, corn. This was the other dream. They blended together like this, with hardly a seam to show the difference. He was in the corn, the green corn, and the smell was summer earth and cow manure and growing things. He got to his feet and began to walk up the row he had found himself in. 
stopping momentarily as he realized he could hear the soft wicker of the wind flowing between the July corn's green sword-like blades. And something else. Music? Yes, some sort of music. And in the dream, he thought, so that's what they mean. It was coming from straight ahead, and he walked toward it, wanting to see if this particular succession of pretty sounds came from what was called piano or horn or cello or what. The hot smell of summer in his nostrils, the overarching blue sky above, that lovely sound. In his dream, Nick had never been happier. And as he neared the sound, a voice joined the music, an old voice like dark leather, slurring the words a little, as if the song was a stew, often reheated, that never lost its old savor. Mesmerized, Nick walked toward it. He walked through the stalks of corn, and he finally comes to a shack in the clearing. And there is a rusty trash barrel to the left, and an old tire swing hanging from an apple tree to the right. The shack is described as a porch slanted out from the house, a splintery old thing held up with old oil-clotted jacklifters. The windows were open, and the kind summer breeze blew ragged white curtains in and out of them. From the roof, a peaked chimney of galvanized tin, dented and smoky, jutted at its own odd angle. This house sat in its clearing, and the corn stretched away in all four directions as far as the eye could see. It was broken only on the north by a dirt road that dwindled away to a point on the flat horizon. It was always then that Nick knew where he was, Polk County, Nebraska. And sitting on the porch is the oldest woman in America, a black woman with fluffy, white, thin hair. Nick feels like he could just stand where he is for the rest of the day, watching the old black woman sitting on her porch held up by jacklifters in the middle of all this corn listening to her sing and play. She sings again, but stops mid-sentence to speak to Nick. She asks who nailed him to that spot, and Nick responds that he just wanted to listen to her sing. The singing was beautiful. The woman responds that she sings most of the day now, and she asks Nick how he's making out with that black man. Nick responds that he scares him and that he's afraid. The woman tells Nick he should be afraid because we are all mortal. Nick asks how he's supposed to tell the dark man no, and the woman says, How do you breathe? How do you dream? No one knows, but you come see me any time. Mother Abigail is what they call me. I'm the oldest woman in these parts, I guess, and I still make my own biscuit. You come see me any time, boy, and bring your friends. Nick wakes up, Nebraska fading bit by bit as the real world filtered in. He was Nick Andros, and he was alive. The swelling in his leg had gone down, the aching now only a throb. He was healing. He was going to be okay. Nick knows now that he has to leave, and he would have to leave that day, because this was no longer Shoyo, but the corpse of Shoyo. And where would he go? Well, dreams were just dreams, but he knows now that he's going to go northwest towards Nebraska. Nick packs up some things, some canned food, more penicillin, some ammunition for the pistol, and a canteen. And then he finds a 10-speed bike in one of the garages in Shoyo, and he pedals out of town at a quarter past one on July 3rd. It says he camped that night in a farmhouse 10 miles west of Shoyo. By nightfall on July 4th, he was nearly to Oklahoma. That evening, before he went to sleep, he stood in another farmyard, 
his face turned up to the sky, watching a meteor shower scratch the night with cold, white fire. He thought he had never seen anything so beautiful. Whatever lay ahead, he was glad to be alive. And that is the end of chapter 40. We get a few things in this shorter chapter. One, we learn Nick's leg is getting infected from the bullet graze he suffered from the night Ray Booth tried to kill him, again. And he's also having the same dreams as Stu, Fran, and Glenn Bateman. And these are very vivid for Nick. In his dreams, he can hear and he can speak. And he comes face to face with the Dark Man, just like the others had. The Dark Man has him in the desert with stars shining above him. He's showing Nick what he could have if he got onto his knees and worshipped him. The same way that he got Lloyd to pledge his loyalty, promising things they so desperately wanted. Freedom, food, and power, in Lloyd's case. And here with Nick, the ability to talk and to hear. Is Flag that powerful an entity that he could give Nick those things? It certainly seems possible, but Nick is able to say no, despite how desperately he wants them. And because there's still fear surrounding the Dark Man, and Nick is still afraid. In this chapter, we also meet someone that the others have yet to dream about. Okay, well, that's not entirely true. Stu did dream about the corn while he was still being held in the CDC in Chapter 13. He had even heard the guitar playing hymns. But Stu had known in the dream that the corn and that music, that was where he needed to get to, despite not remembering quite where it was when he woke up. Nick had dreamed of the corn once in Chapter 18, not remembering much of it beyond walking through endless rows of corn, looking for something, but being afraid of something else that seemed to be behind him. Nick dreams of the corn again in Chapter 25, when Vince and Billy Warner were dying in the jail cells from the flu. Nick had a sense of home from those dreams, but also the underlying fear that something was in the corn watching him. And now he dreams of the corn again, and this time, Nick comes face to face with Mother Abigail. She's an old woman, the oldest woman living in those parts, and probably the oldest woman living in the entire world now, thanks to Captain Tripps. We don't know much about Mother Abigail beyond where she lives and what she looks like, but she wants Nick to come see her whenever he wants to, and she wants Nick to bring his friends, which is a little odd given he doesn't have any and he is currently on his own. So Nick experiences two very different dreams, one of the dark man promising Nick things he's always craved and always wanted, but Nick was strong enough to resist. He says no, leading him into his dream with Mother Abigail. Instead of fear, Nick feels happy. In this dream, he is the happiest he's ever been, and he loves listening to her sing. He loves the smell of summer air. In this dream, there's nothing in the corn after him. It's just Mother Abigail wanting Nick to find her. So when Nick wakes up, of course, he realizes it's time to leave Shoyo and head northwest. And Nick's leg was not doing too well when he fell asleep. He was delirious with fever, and he had the signs of blood poisoning, which is no joke. So did the penicillin really help his leg? Is that what started the healing process, or was it something more? Maybe something a little supernatural? Did Nick's dreams have anything to do with his leg healing? There's really no definitive answer here, but the important thing is that his leg is getting better, and Nick feels healthy enough now to pack up, find a bike, and cycle out of Arkansas. Again, this is a pretty telling chapter showing us the kind of man that Nick is. He is very young, but he's a good person at heart. 
He was tempted by flag, yes, but he was still able to say no. He's aware that there's something terrifying about the man, um, and hell, so did Lloyd. (laughs) And he even has the wonder of being able to speak and hear, but that isn't enough for him. Certainly given those things is not enough for Nick to fall down at the men's feet and pledge his loyalty to him. So maybe it's the rejection of flag that finally puts Nick in front of Mother Abigail instead of just having these vague dreams about the corn um, surrounding her home. So when Nick wakes, it's not to the desert that he wants to go. It's Nebraska. I also loved the descriptions that King gave us in this chapter um, when Nick is able to finally hear and speak. Um, Just the awe and wonder of just hearing, you know, his fingernails against his shirt. Stuff that we hear every day uh, that we probably take for granted. Um, so it to me, it's even more impressive uh, that Nick is able to tell Flag no, that he doesn't, he can't worship this man, um, even though he's being given this promise that you will have these things if you do something so simple. So um, I think that speaks volumes about Nick's character, because I have a feeling that there are some people in this book that might not be strong enough to say no when being offered so many um, wonderful things by Flag, But yeah, just the descriptions that King gives, not only um, with Nick being able to hear and speak, but, you know, of just the desert air, the, the stars above, above them, um, Nick watching the meteor shower, the description of Mother Abigail, which I didn't go into in full detail in this in this episode. But if you guys are reading long, you know what I'm talking about. He just has this wonderful way with words. I mean, he described her singing voice as a savory reheated stew. I mean, (laughs) I would never in a million years be able to come up with that kind of description, but it fits so perfectly at the same time. I haven't really delved very deeply um, into King's writing in a lot of these chapters, but this chapter, chapter 40, is such a testament to his writing ability. Um, There's not a lot of dialogue, but the descriptions of um, the corn and Mother Abigail and just Nick's, what he's smelling and what he's seeing and hearing, um, the desert air, all of that stuff is just, I could picture it all so perfectly in my head as I was reading. It was like I was watching a a movie in my brain. (laughs) So yeah, King's descriptions and his writing in this chapter are just top notch. So Nick is really the first person to start his journey towards Mother Abigail. He is happy to be alive and it's time to move on from Shoyo and find the next step in his journey. Also on a journey of his own is Larry Underwood, who is just waking up in Bennington, Vermont on July 4th with Miss Lovely Rita by his side. So we'll see what those two kids are up to next week in chapter 41. And that's it for this episode, you guys. Uh, Thank you for sticking with me through the journey um, that we're on for the stand. And if you are enjoying this podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts um, or anywhere where you, any platform that you listen to this uh, podcast on. If you want to get a hold of me or you have any questions or just want to talk about the stand, you can email me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. Or find me on social media at The Circle Opens. And uh, that's it for this week, you guys. I hope that you're having a great start to your February. And I hope that it only gets better. And M-O-O-N, that spells. See you next week. Mm -hmm.